This week on Vedic Mythology, Music, and Mantras, a second version of the Draupadi story from the very beginning of the great epic, the Mahabharata. This podcast is a production of Pujanet, P-U-J-A dot N-E-T, your Vedic resource on the web. There are usually many different versions of stories in the Vedic tradition, and as is typical of mythological stories in general, they may at times be in conflict with one another, but that certainly doesn't invalidate or diminish the greatness of these stories. After all, the value of mythology is to preserve the timeless themes of human life in all their own inherent contradictions, as opposed to preserving an accurate historical record of events or of specific individuals, human or divine. Once there was a king named Santanu who loved to hunt, and one day he was walking along the banks of the river Ganga. He turned a corner and suddenly saw an especially beautiful woman. She stood there in front of him, smiling slightly, twirling her hair with long fingers while she traced circles with her toe in the sand. Flirting itself must be Vedic and timeless, because there's a story in the Ramayana where a beautiful woman is described doing exactly the same thing, right down to the tracing of circles in the sand with her toe. Well, in this case, her name was Ganga, and unbeknownst to the king, she was the goddess of the river taken human form. The king was thoroughly transfixed and immediately asked her to return with him to her to his kingdom, which in those days was called Hastinapur, now known as Delhi. Well, she agreed, but only under the condition that he never cross her in any way. She warned him that if he were to question or displease her, she would leave never to return. Well, she must have been especially beautiful and charming if he would unhesitatingly agree to those terms of marriage. And, of course, what woman wouldn't want a husband who'd accept conditions such as these? So they returned to his palace and lived happily for a long time until the day that she bore him a son. Well, he was thrilled to finally have an heir to his throne, but his joy was short-lived. One morning he looked for his wife and his new child, and her maid told him that she had taken the newly born child down to the banks of the Ganga. Well, he went after her, reaching the river, only to watch in horror as she threw the baby in the water. As difficult as it must have been, he remembered his vow and said nothing. This sad scene was repeated the next year and the next, the next again, and continually each year until seven years had passed. But each time the king was mindful of his vow and kept his pain and questions to himself. But when the eighth year arrived and yet another son was born, he'd had enough. He followed his wife to the river, river and accosted her just as she was about to throw the eighth child in. With a strange smile, she told the king that indeed this child would live and that she would now be leaving, never to return. In addition, she informed the king that she would be taking the child with her and would only return him to the king once he was grown. The king was panicked and urgently asked her for a better explanation. Well, she explained that in his previous life, King Santanu had been the king Mahaabhishek, who during a visit to Indra's court in the heavens had seen her, and immediately they had felt an intense desire for each other. But the gods felt that this was unseemly for a goddess and a mere human to desire each other, so they compelled her to be born on earth in human form so that the two of them could be together and satisfy their lust. Well, certainly the king found this interesting, but he demanded to know why she kept drowning their children. 
Well, she explained that the children's presence here on earth was also the result of a curse. They were the eight Vasus, the sons of Prajapati, the creator, who were now the attendants of Indra, the king of heaven. And it seemed that they were all out in the forest having a nice picnic when they saw a divine wish-giving cow. And at the suggestion of one of them, named Dios, they decided to steal it as a prank. It was very bad luck to have done so, because the cow belonged to Vasish Darishi. And if you listen to my netcast number 39, you know the misfortune that befell Vishwamitra when he styled, tried to steal that same cow from Vasishta. Well, it was bad luck for the Vasus as well, and they were cursed by Vasishta to be born as humans, and the seven who helped had only to live a year on earth, and the eighth, Dios, who was the instigator of the prank, had to live here a full lifetime. He was the eighth child whom King Santanu had just saved from being thrown into the river. This child was later known as Bhishma, one of the most central and interesting characters in the Mahabharata. But now the king returned home, and sixteen lonely years later, the king was walking again along the Ganga River when he saw her. He was thrilled once again to see his wife, and with tears in his eyes he begged her to return. But she again refused to come home with him, saying that when the sun has set on a day, it is foolish to ask it to come back so that you can live the day once again. The sun will come back, but only to usher in another day. Instead, she introduced him to their son, Devavrata. The king was thrilled, and as Ganga again disappeared, the king rode happily back to his kingdom with his son. Four years passed, and the king happily made Devavrata's heir apparent. And one day the king was again walking along a river, this time it was the Yamuna, when he smelled a strange perfume and traced it to a beautiful woman who was tying up a boat. Her name was Satyavati, and the king was again transfixed and immediately wanted to marry her and make her queen. So he went to see her father to ask for her hand, and the father was indeed agreeable but had a condition, that the son born to his daughter would become king. But the king immediately thought of his son Devavrata and declined, sadly returning to his city, Hastinapur. King Santanu returned to his palace despondent. He moped about and lost interest in everything, but he would not explain the sudden change to his son. His son was not fooled. He knew his father well and immediately went to his charioteer, who had been the king's confidant for many years. The first words out of his mouth were, Who is this woman who has stolen my father's heart? Gradually the story came out, and without hesitation, Devavrata went to search out the fisherman and his daughter. The three had a conversation, and the fisherman explained that, indeed, he was willing to let his daughter marry the king, but he insisted that their son become the heir apparent. Devavrata, in his devotion to his father, immediately agreed to step aside and relinquish his position as the Yuvaraja, but the fisherman pressed further by asking how he could be sure that Devavrata wouldn't later change his mind when he had sons of his own. Devavrata was shocked to be spoken to this way and replied with contempt in his voice, You're not satisfied yet? Well, let me satisfy you. I will not marry in this life. Are you now satisfied? Well, indeed the father was, and flowers rained down from heaven to mark Devavrata's terrible vow, and the word Bhishma reverberated from all corners.
So now Devavrata would be known as Bhishma. He returned to Hastinapur and in gratitude his father granted Bhishma the boon that he would die, but only at the time and place of his own choosing. Soon King Santanu and his new life had two sons, Chetranganda and Vichitravirya. Well, time passed and eventually the king passed away, leaving Chitranganda to be king. But he was still too young and Bhishma ruled in his place for many years. But once again calamity struck. It turned out that a Gandharvan, a celestial musician, had the same name and did not like having a mortal with the same name as he. Unfortunately, in the resulting battle, Chitrangada, the human, was killed, leaving his younger brother, Vichitravirya, to become king. But he too was too young, so once again the responsibility for ruling the kingdom fell upon the shoulders of Bhishma. In due course, the young prince was ready to marry, and the king of the nearby kingdom of Kasi had three beautiful young daughters, Amba, Ambika, and Ambalika. But instead of a private arrangement, as had been the custom between the two kingdoms, the king of Kashi decided to hold a swayamvara for his daughters, so they could choose whom they would marry themselves. Bhishma was insulted because the kings of Kashi had always married their daughters into the Kuru family, of which Vichitravirya was soon to be king. Well, kings and princes from all over came, and when Bhishma arrived, they mocked him, suspecting that he was violating his well-known bow of brahmachari by coming to compete with the others for a wife. They thought him excessively vain for daring to think that any of the young princesses would choose him. But they were wrong. Bhishma simply said that he was taking all three princesses for the young prince, Vichitravirya, and he defied anyone to take them from him. Only one king by the name of Salva tried, but he failed, and Bhishma spared his life in the end. Bhishma arrived back in Hastinapur and presented the three princesses to Vichitravirya, who was delighted. But the eldest princess, Amba, was not so happy and spoke up explaining that when Bhishma took her, she was in the process of choosing King Salva for her husband, and after conferring, Bhishma and Vichitravirya decided to let her go to Salva and be his wife. But when she reached him, King Salva didn't want her, saying that if he did so, he would be no more than a beggar accepting gifts from his enemy. Besides, he pointed out, Bhishma won you fair and square. By the laws of Dharma you belong to him. So she returned to Bhishma and explained what had happened. But he couldn't and wouldn't help her. He sadly and sincerely explained that he had taken a vow not to marry, and as unfortunate as he felt it was, he could not, under any circumstances, marry her. She was miserable and blamed Bhishma. Her anger intensified for six years, and finally she left for the forest. Eventually she met up with some rishis and wanted to do her tapas, her meditations, with them. But they did not want an unmarried woman with them, fearing the distraction, and referred her to the Rishi Bhargava. Well, Bhargava spoke with her with all kindness, and as fate would have it, he was also the Rishi for Bhishma and the royal family. Bhargava said that he would personally go and see what could be done for Amba. But Bhishma had no intention of relinquishing his vow of Brahmacharya, and desperately tried to explain this to his guru. But Bhargava was adamant, there was no reason to waste this woman's life 
when everything could be solved so easily if Bhishma would only take Amba as his wife. After all, the original purpose of the vow had long ago been fulfilled, but Bhishma said no, a vow was a vow. Bhargava was not to be deterred and angrily threatened Bhishma with a choice. Either they could fight or Bhargava would curse Bhishma. Of the two alternatives, Bhishma wisely chose to fight. Well, they battled for days and neither one was able to gain an advantage. And eventually Bhishma decided to use a mystical weapon called a Praswapa Ashtra. But it was so powerful, so fearful, that it would have meant the destruction of the world and the gods, led by Narada and Rudra, appeared and begged Bhishma to stop. He eventually agreed that because it would have been unseemly for him to defeat his own teacher. As Bhishma accepted his defeat, Bhargava turned to Amba and said, Well, I've tried to help you, but I cannot. Your desire is not to be achieved. Amba understandably miffed, stomped off. She retired to the forest to perform, as the text is fond of saying, a terrible penance. Eventually, Suramanyam, the son of Shiva, appeared before her. He said that he was pleased with her efforts and offered her a boon. Understanding what she wanted, he gave her a garland of flowers, saying that whomever wore the garland would be the person who would kill Bhishma. She thought that she had accomplished her goal and took the garland with great joy. Well, she visited all the powerful kings of the land, but none would wear the garland. They either respected Bhishma for his stalwart adherence to the laws of Dharma, or they were afraid to have him as an enemy. Eventually she reached the court of King Drupada, and you'll remember him from the last netcast, and he too said no, saying that if, anyone, uh, if it were anyone but Bhishma, he would have been glad to help her. He is powerful, but he is good, King Drupada said. Hardly what Amba wanted to hear, and in her frustration she flung the garland around a pillar. The king reasonably was concerned. No one dared to touch it, and the king had the garland guarded with great care. Well, Amba went back to the forest and resumed her mantra practices, but her focus was not enlightenment. Her focus continued to be the destruction of Bhishma. There are many, many mantras for the destruction of enemies, and this was all that she did. Day after day, she burned with her desire to destroy Bhishma. Well, one day Shiva appeared before her, and he said, Grieve not, my child. In your next life you will be the cause of Bhishma's death. In fact, you yourself will kill him. But Amba was impatient and said bitterly, In my next birth? Then how can I taste the joy of my revenge? Shiva laughed, do not worry. In your next life, you will remember every one of the many incidents you have experienced in this life. You will be a woman first, but later a man, and you will have your revenge. You will be born in the family of King Drupada. Well, Amba was satisfied and immediately constructed a large fire and threw herself into it. Later, as Shiva said, she was born as the daughter of King Drupada. And one day, as a little girl, she was wandering in the palace and came across the garland that she had left there in her incarnation as Amba. She grabbed the garland and quickly placed it around her neck. King Drupada, hearing about this from one of the guards, came running, overcome with fear and panic, knowing exactly what this meant. 
But the little girl, now known as Shikandi, smiled serenely and said, Do not be concerned, father. I have been born as your child for the sole purpose of wearing this garland. You can live in peace. Just leave the rest to me. And this is where we'll stop for this week. Next week we'll continue with the story of Amba and Bhishma because it sets the stage for the rest of the Mahabharata. And it's interesting that we usually think of the Mahabharata as being the story of Krishna, but it seems that Shiva and his son Subramanian play a subtle but vital role setting things in motion, particularly with regard to Amba and the garland. And since Shiva is the destroyer, he's fulfilled his role, even if subtly and indirectly. So for chanting this week, I thought I'd play first Shiva Stuti, which many of you will recognize. This is a rather nice, very old recording of it. And then there's an upbeat song in the traditional style of Tamil Nadu called Shanmuganar about Subramanyam, Shiva's son. And that will do it for this week. As always, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.
ಅಷ್ಟದರಿದ್ರವಿನಾಶನಲಿಂಗಂ ತತ್ಪ್ರಣಮಿ ಸದಾ ಶಿವಲಿಂಗಂ ಸುರಗುರು ಸುರವರ ಪೂಜಿತಲಿಂಗಂ ಸುರವನ ಪುಷ್ಪ ಸದಾರ್ಚಿತಲಿಂಗಂ ಪರಮ ಪರಂ ಪರಮಾತ್ಮಕಲಿಂಗಂ ತತ್ಪ್ರಣಮಿ ಸದಾ ಶಿವಲಿಂಗಂ ಲಿಂಗಾಷ್ಟಕಮಿದಂ ಪುಣ್ಯಂ ಯಠೇಚ್ಚಿವ ಸನ್ನಿಧೌ ಶಿವಲೋಕಮವಾಪ್ನೋತಿ ಶಿವೇನ ಸಹ ಮೋದತಿ ಪಳನಿಂಡವಾಣ್ಮುಗನಾಥ ಪಾರಂಗಳ್ ಎಂದ ವಿನಯಾನಾಲಂ ತೀರ್ಥ 
தேவன் கந்தரவன் பக்தர்களை காப்பவன் தான் பழனி மலை வேலனவன் ஆடுங்கள் கர்ம வினை தீரங்கள் கந்தன் முன்னே பாவம் பறந்தோடும் பாருங்கள் எந்த வினையானாலும் தீர்த்திடுவான் கந்தனவன் பக்தர்களை காப்பவன் தான் பழனி மலை வேலனவன் பழனி ஆண்டு வாஷன் முகநாதா 